guess it's like a timely segue to death episode. We did a love, like, what is it, a few weeks ago, right? We did love episodes, so. Yeah, kinda. so we're, we're yes, we're, we're bracketing the human condition here, like, now dealing with the death <laughs> Well, and we should plan, like, how we want to handle it. We have lots of names. I mean, should yeah. we should we just well, play it by ear? Should we, I don't know, yeah, how, how do you well, want to do Well, that's the it? thing. I think, I mean, I just imagine because it's not, there are a lot of people who died in 2020 yeah. around... I mean, I guess, especially around entertainment all of a sudden, but mm-hmm. I guess we should only cover the ones we care about. What, because why, why, why it's not that many? Because you, you told me your like fairly short list. I have mine. Yeah, I you have, I mean, it's just, well, let's see how it's it goes. Let's see. Yeah, but it's uh, also Let's do like, the, the ones that matter most to us and then we can, we can uh, even out of this list and then we'll see how how far yeah. along we've gotten <laughs> yeah yeah but it does feel overall there is some sort of a milestone year i don't know it's not that i've been watching too closely deaths like yearly of i don't know of important people in mm-hmm. film we mostly do film right but um in media but but this year it is kind of like a lot of the kind of the previous generation or something mm-hmm. like the icons definitely left mm-hmm. so i'm just looking yeah but anyway but i uh, do you have a specific i don't know do you have a certain angle because i kind of <laughs> the death episode came kind of naturally because <laughs> 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 you know but i don't have a specific angle why i want to talk about it Except I don't either. I just, yeah. you know, we always wanted to do an honored dead, and you know, for mm-hmm. me, that 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 really does get into picking and choosing. Like, who do you, who do you really care about? I mean, there's a lot of deaths that seem shocking for different reasons. Like the the Naya Rivera death is. Yeah. It's not like I'm some big fan from the Glee, you know, mm-hmm. performer. Um, who it's just that her death. She's young. She was young. She drowned at 33, and her child, who was four, was in the boat. <laughs> um, and you know managed to survive by just not getting into the water to try after her but it's yeah. just such a poignant death but you know I'm not I'm not a particular fan or particularly insightful about Daya Rivera so there's just been kind of shocker deaths um, from yeah, enter- among entertaining shocker, people even, did, did you try I read like just a few pieces I still I can understand too. Yeah. she drowned because it's just such a mystery well, it's apparently that that lake, and now I've forgotten to, to note down the name of the lake, is actually very treacherous, but it's not officially posted as such. So, mm-hmm. so there's been some commentary on, you know, there's been a lot of drownings in that lake. People, it looks calm on the surface, but there's all this undertow stuff. Um, so that was, at least that was some of the explanation for what seemed like a, this bizarre death. Like both she and her son had been swimming. She put him back in the boat. She was still swimming. And then the next thing you know, she just wasn't there. So... It's, at least that's the account I read. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, for a kid, it seems so scary. It's yeah, like a, terrifying. This four-year-old floating around out there until they rescue him. So yeah, really, really shocking. And of course, the Glee cast, the decimation of the Glee cast of young people who all had this early success. Corey Monteith, who overdosed. Um, Mark Salling. Uh, arrested with tons of child porn was, I think, awaiting trial when he hanged himself. So that's three of the major performers who are dead. So, you know, that's just got a kind of uh, morbid, lurid <laughs> shock appeal. Um, but I'm, you know, again, it's not it's not a particularly important to me um, kind of death in terms of what they contributed um, as far as their talent or whatever. So yeah, there's those I kinds mean- of distinctions. Yeah, what about actually just thinking about, did you know anyone, uh, I mean, Amon, I guess, <laughs> the honored, the honored dad, mm-hmm. um, like from outside of America that died this year? 
um, Ennio Morricone. Oh, Ennio Morricone, that's right. We actually yeah. never even said anything. That's right. That's just very recent. Yeah, we mentioned him briefly when it, when he had just died, um, but we didn't really talk at any kind of length. Um, and I'm trying to think, do we have, I don't even know, I think they're all Americans other than that. Yeah, well, on my end, I mean, I don't know if I want to go into it, but I was definitely shocked right before the coronavirus hit. I think it was like late, like early March, mm-hmm. uh, Edward, Edward Lomonov died. He's oh, like, right. Um, yes, yes, yes. Really famous Russian yes, writer. Russian writer. <laughs> who for a while lived in America mm-hmm. and uh, was pretty big in Paris at some point. His mm-hmm. books are published in French. And um, yeah, and eventually he moved back to Moscow and um, became a leader of a pretty uh, kind of radical, and they called themselves a national Bolshevik. No, what am I Not national Bolshevik. What do they call themselves? Jesus, I'm blanking. But yeah, sort of like uh, not particularly flattering, but like kind of like a weird sort of... <laughs> right-wing people's party mm-hmm. pretty radical but um then i think eventually he moved more left and mm-hmm. uh, yeah and they they were the most radical kind of political party in the last i don't know 30 years since it appeared mm-hmm. since he came back but anyway and, but he also i mean his political it seems like career not interest many people but his books definitely are and uh, there's i guess for I guess listeners, because I don't know, mm-hmm. a lot of his books translated into like English and French and I guess mm-hmm. other languages, but I guess a real a good introduction to him is uh, a French uh, biography of him by Emmanuel Carrer called mm-hmm. Lomanov. It's originally was like in French, but it's it was definitely some some sort of a, of a bestseller, I imagine. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's 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 a good kind of introductory read on him. And then right. Al Carrera, I don't know if you, you you've read any of his books. I mean, I don't like. I've only him as a read writer. like pieces, like uh, um, yeah, like shorter essay pieces. And he's a great shock, shock writer. You know, really, you feel electrified um, reading his stuff. Yeah, he's good. I mean, I, I would say like I tried reading his like novel. He definitely read a few no- mm. wrote a few novels that was just unbearable. But but he's like uh, as a biographer, which is definitely a talent of its own kind. Um, he's great. He has an amazing biography of uh, Philip K. Dick too. Mm. Something like Inside the Mind of Philip K. Dick. Um, I think it, yeah, it's better than Lomanos, but Lomanos is mm-hmm. good too. So mm-hmm. um, that's would be my recommendation. But yeah, anyway, but that's too far away from Hollywood. So, <laughs> well, yeah, there is one other. Um, um, the Swedish actor Max von Sydow is one of your picks. So at least we're we're going that far. Yeah, For you too, probably. Yes, right? yes, that was a bit, that was shocking. Even though he was very quite elderly, I don't know why. I think everyone had such affection for him. <laughs> Who knew his work at all? And he'd been around so long, and he'd done so such so many eclectic. Things. I mean, it's everything from the Seventh Seal and a lot of other stuff with Ingmar Bergman. So very, very high culture, high brow art cinema to you know Ming the Merciless in Flash. You know, a kind of cheesy Flash Gordon film. You know, he was kind of all over the map and seemed to be very, very you know endearingly good humored about that kind of <laughs> kind of thing, doing doing all sorts of crazy things. And you know, for me, I just mourn the loss of such a great. Face. It's rare to see someone who's as is born to be an actor as that is just based on incredible face alone that you never forget. And he had this, the, the, you know, the longest, <laughs> the most elongated, high cheekbone kind of dramatic. Um, everything catches the light kind of face that an actor could have. That's true. The bone structure is kind yeah, of very amazing. dramatic. Huh? 
Yes. Yeah. Even, it's still, you're just, you just stop, especially when he's young. It's just so startling. He's so startling looking. All of Seventh Seal. You just want to stare at him because he's so incredible looking. He plays the knight. And you do for like, what, almost two hours. Yeah. You're That's just riveted because <laughs> yeah, you can just train that camera right on him. All that p- weird pale, you know, kind of eyelashless almost paleness of the eyes. There's just something so ascetic and amazing about him in that film. And then you can go to something as, you know, Hollywood as The Exorcist. Of course, he plays, you know, one of the two priests um, mm-hmm. who are trying to free the poor <laughs> the poor little girl from the demonic possession, or the, literally the devil. Um, and, you know, he brings this kind of ability to generate, like, you know, he had, so, he had a tremendous aura of, of, you know, both what you know power and yeah you just felt well you just felt like he had so much banked power he could generate that sense that there's even a shot that could be hilarious where it's like there he's in some ancient i don't know where ancient world site some archaeological kind of um um, dig site and there's a a big statue of a demon and he got he stands up and and kind of it's almost like it's him versus the statue of the demon and they're both equally long and tall and impressive and you're like well you gotta look like max von saito to be able to to pull that shot off <laughs> That's true. I mean, it's funny. I kind of like I, I knew he was an exorcist because I, I liked the movie as a kid, but I can't I didn't connect somehow. I don't know. It's like somehow because I guess it's Hollywood. I didn't connect it immediately to. Well, yeah, he's know, he's he's, he's the great poster. Admittedly, it's a great poster and it's him standing outside. It's, you know, outside the house, the kind of house of mm-hmm. hell. And it's a kind of semi silhouette. Um, so him measuring his power against the demonic presence within, you know, it's, it, it, it makes total sense. It makes total instant sense of the movie, which is what you want a poster to do. But again, you need someone who's like him, <laughs> who looks like he's got spiritual power, which is a very hard thing to look like. Most people do he not look like, like they a have. Minister, yeah, absolutely. Really high priest or I guess high priest is yes, better. Absolutely, he does. How you become that way? I mean, I guess he was like. With, I don't know what's his background. Yeah, it so sounds cool. like he. I think I can't remember if he was a Lutheran or what, but Lutheran. he. Yeah, he was Lutheran, I think he was yeah. Lutheran. And of course, Bergman was quite conflicted in a religious way too, but ultimately a believer, even if he had a hugely conflicted relation with God. And apparently, I was just reading that apparently they had an ongoing argument because because yeah. <laughs> Juan Saito became an atheist or at least an mm-hmm. agnostic early on. And then he's on some talk show toward the end of his life, and said, "Well, that that you know, Bergman said, if I die before you, I'll I'll try to I'll try to convey something to you. I'll try to try to speak to you and get some message from you to prove." Oh, and <laughs> there's he, an and afterlife. He did, he did right? Yeah, and I guess supposedly <laughs> I forget what show he was on. I read but anyway, something like that. Yes, yeah. so supposedly you know, the guy, of course, asked him. The, the interviewer said, "Well, did did he?" And he said, "Yes, he did." And then, that, well, and then he didn't want to, and then he yeah. didn't want to talk about it anymore. So it's yeah, just but then like, wait, wow. if he did, he should have become a believer. Then what's up with Max? Well, no, that suggests like, the implication seemed to be he had become a believer. Uh, he had, okay, by, okay. So by, just by the very end, presumably because of that. But he didn't really yeah. go into details. Anyway, yeah, I actually kind of I like I like that story. I mean, I'd love to make a pact with someone like that because I'm oh, definitely absolutely. Very about everything. It's but, the, it's uh, the old yeah. Houdini pact. <laughs> I'll I'm, I'll say the words, the secret words, and you see if you can you ever get them delivered to you in any form after well but it actually suits him and suits the fact that he was on the seventh seal i mean god 
Yeah, and he and Bergman had such a long collaboration. He was in so many of Bergman's films, and you can see he's just the perfect Bergman Bergman actor. So, but of course, he transcends that because you know, if he was just a Bergman actor, you'd only think about him in a certain way. But sure, because he's the one who made a move for Hollywood pretty yes. somewhat successfully, which is rare still. Yes. Right? how many people really did it? Like, yeah, Bergman, <laughs> him. Yeah, and at first everybody wanted him, and supposedly he wasn't that interested at first. You know, he was happy to stay in Sweden, but um, yeah, eventually, obviously, he gets drawn into all these. Oh, he's got just a, the weirdest filmography. If you read it, it's he's definitely not bound to the whole high culture thing. He's really all over the map. Yeah, so I like that about him too. It's almost like Udo, do I say his right? Something reminds me. It's not the same, of course. Udo, what's his name? Udo Greer? Udo no, Udo Greer. Oh, God, Udo what's Kier? his name? Yeah, Udo. You know, the Udo Kier, yeah, the German yeah. actor. Who's yeah, he's all in over it. the place. He's all over the place, too, yeah. And a lot of like, British actors are famous for that. They always just go with the work. Michael Caine being the leading the leading I figure that like way. That. That's <laughs> kind of anti-snob. It. It's totally anti-snob, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just like to work, and <laughs> so I keep working, and sometimes I don't have some snooty, high-culture, in-depth character on offer, so I go do something hilariously fun that allows me to go to wherever and name some delightful place that you can go on location. You know, I, I have a lot of respect for that as well. And just the idea that you want to keep working. Oh, that yeah. makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Definitely. And then you don't pretend to be some sort of like extre- like extremely elevated being. Yeah. Uh, outside of any like really worldly concerns. I can only but- do a, a role every four years because I have to replenish myself. You know, there's all yeah, sorts of numbers yeah. that can go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he, he makes sense as a, someone to be very fond of, it seems like. You know, there's different categories. People you just kind of love and immediately go, oh, when you read that they've died. People you have some sort of respect or regard for, for various reasons. You know, there's all sorts of reasons why. You know, so it's hard. I was hard. To, I was trying to come up with categories and I was having a hard time. There's all sorts of reasons why you, you want to honor somebody who died in the entertainment world. Yeah, because you, well, I thought, should we even cover that? Because you eventually did write a piece on, did you mention Fred Willard and Jerry Stiller in, in, like, in one piece? I I, actually, I was meant to do something on mm-hmm. uh, Fred Willard as part uh-huh. of, I was assigned a Jerry Stiller piece that's for right, Jacobin. Right. And then I wound up, it, it went longer than I expected, and I just wound up never getting, working myself around to Fred Willard, which was ironic, since I always responded much more to Fred Willard. Mm-hmm. And in fact... I was so hung up for a something to write about with regard to Jerry Stiller that I had to go read his autobiography, <laughs> Married to Laughter, in order to get any kind of an angle. Because, you know, I, I wasn't a Seinfeld fan, so I didn't, mm-hmm. you know, of course I'd seen little bits of his famous, like, Serenity Now bit, all that stuff. But I, I hadn't really followed that. I didn't really, I'd seen a few things he'd done, but... I never, I'd never been a fan of Stiller and Mira, which was, you know, when in my childhood was still kind of hanging on as a comedy duo. That's Jerry Stiller and his wife Ann Mira were quite successful for a while. You know, I just didn't respond to him all that much. But then I really liked him once I read the autobiography. I was like, hey, you know, this guy is really, really the old, the old time meant. She seemed to like a really good guy, and boy, well trained as hell, like trained to go way beyond, you know the comedic roles, the stand-up comedy, the types of things he tended to do. He was doing Shakespeare with, you know, George C. Scott and Colleen Dewhurst. And, you know, he was, he was, he, he got a very thorough, he was studying with Uta Hagen and he, he was a seriously trained actor. And after the, you read his um, whatever biography, did mm-hmm. you appreciate him more? Is it some Oh sort yeah, of- no, I came to really like him. 
you know, you know, he's a big progressive. That was how how I got assigned it. He's he's kind of beloved on the left because he was a major lefty progressive kind of figure. He was stumping. He and his wife um, were doing a pro single payer health care commercial. I think it was in 1994. Um, so he was a kind of old fashioned lefty who comes up out of the work uh, true working class poverty. I mean, like his parents moved around, but it was like Lower East Side, Brooklyn, and real slum. Um, hardcore slum life and, you know, just stayed his, all his life or, or you know, a, a pretty serious lefty by, you know, the, just mm-hmm. the soft standards of, of the United States anyway. <laughs> um, yeah. And he just had that quality of always having a lot of principles that, you know, I, admittedly I was reading about it in his own autobiography, but, you know, you, 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 he was so self-deprecating in, in some wonderful ways, like talking about his first sexual encounter and with a sex worker when, while he was in the army and, and he just could not get an erection and he, he admits it all. And he finally has to tell her she's, she's very upset and has hurt feelings. And he's like, it's just that you remind me of my mother. <laughs> okay, there's no way and his mother was a nightmare um of really abject misery so that that didn't help any so he really clawed his way up out of out of nowhere but they're just wonderful stories there's he and his brother being in a terrible kind of autocratic boys camp um and and him vowing never to to go back to that camp so he goes and researches other camps for the following summer and finds something called the something like the Boys Brotherhood Republic, and it's a completely self-directed, run by the boys on Democratic Principles Camp. How the hell he found this, I don't know. That that he then went to because he just wasn't going to tolerate this kind of you know, terrible autocratic rule that was going on. So he had these kind of principles that he'd actually live up to that were kind of impressive. Yeah, I mean, I guess especially my generation thinks of him only as this. I mean, sort of snippets of this like old yelling. Yeah, this old yelling old man based yeah, on and it's gonna, like, I can't imagine what he'd been Shakespearean after yeah. at some point that's just completely out of yeah and there, unfortunately there aren't a lot of film roles where you can see him being a serious yeah. actor I mean there's a, quite a good one from the 70s um, The Taking of Pelham 123 it stars Walter Matthau and Robert Shaw is really really very very good film mm-hmm. great New York City film that feels entirely authentic the whole place is all scummy and disgusting and everyone in the film has the flu and it's fabulous and he's he's just one of the one of the cops working on this case when you know a subway car is basically hijacked and and he and he's doing a serious character part and he's actually very very good completely completely authentic and believable but you know it seems Mm -hmm. like he was just capable of tons more and there are good stories of how you know for the seinfeld role the role of costanza's father they wanted someone something quite entirely different from what he wound up playing. He was a very risk-taking actor. He'd kind of improvise. He'd kind of def- you know, sometimes defy what was, what the expectation was and risk losing the job. And he did that here. He felt like they wanted someone who's really wimpy and um, you know, really browbeaten <laughs> by by you know a much scarier, tougher wife. And he d- he just was doing such a bad job at it. And he knew it was going terribly that he finally said, "Look, how about if I do this?" And he went into the he just invented on the spot the character that actually wound up 
up being the character. Um, yeah, the ranting, screaming, you know, <laughs> you know un- unbe- unbelievably aggressively angry all the time, always whacking his son in the head and all that shit. That was all him. That was his entire invention. That wasn't the script. Well, it's, it's like suits him. So it feels natural because I, okay, I looked him up, which makes total sense for a person, Jewish kind of person from an immigrant family of his generation. He, he like grew up in Williamsburg, uh-huh. which was basically it's where also Mel Brooks kind of from, mm-hmm. you know, that that's that's the type of people who live there. The real mm-hmm. kind of tougher, tougher Jews. So, yeah, that, and that seems to be he, he kind of captured the spirit to some degree mm-hmm. you know, in, in the character. Yeah, which, you know, makes me think about we can I mean, we'll, we'll probably talk about it later. Have you mm-hmm. heard? Um, there's this new movie coming out, which I think we should kind of tackle connected to this whole uh, kind of old uh, Jewish culture of Lower East Side and mm-hmm. down in Brooklyn, mostly actually Lower East Side, uh, called an, an American or the American Pickle. Wow, I haven't heard of that on the American yeah, Pickle. <laughs> next week. But it's just okay. kind of, it's actually, it can in some ways to Jerry Stiller now when, when you when you like describe his biography and mm-hmm. his childhood, like how he grew up. Uh, is, uh, the movie is actually, um, uh, I think, co-written co- 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 probably to some degree, or, mm-hmm. or is it he just like producing and acting? Seth Rogen, which is like, I'm pretty ambivalent about him generally, but the movie right. like sense interesting because it, you know it's like Seth Rogen plays both characters one is this sort of like um, Jewish immigrant from literally like a, over a hundred years ago mm-hmm. or like exactly hundred years ago from now in Lower East Side who worked in the pickle factory or some kind uh-huh. of pickle production and fell into the brine and instead of dying kind of got sort of um, I don't know what do you call it sort of <laughs> not frozen but got preserved by the brine and a hundred years later in modern day you know New York uh, Lower East Side he sort of <laughs> came back to life or somehow I don't know how that brine thing even remained the pot with brine pickles and, he <laughs> up and he's this like semi-sensation because he's <laughs> this Jewish kind of immigrant from 100 years ago and mm-hmm. turns out you know obviously his progeny survived some a kind of great grandson mm-hmm. who is also Seth Rogen, and that's exactly kind of sets them against you know the real mm-hmm. kind of Jewish in, in a way. I mean, working class with kind of patriarch, tough, mm-hmm. tough guy, working class with some sort of like very uh, not effeminate, but you know, this type of modern guy kind of like is the term kid alt or something like kind of adult that is not fully adult, at least mm-hmm. by old standards, without a wife, without kids, having some kind mm-hmm. of like computer desk job and all that and so and that's the <laughs> and his great grandpa comes into his world you know and tries to make a man out of him by the standards of I guess <laughs> you know 100 years ago which you know <laughs> well yeah <laughs> the old country, you know because uh-huh. they literally just moved from I guess Galicia and then he soon after they moved to America he sort of fell into the brine so mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> it really kind of captures um I don't know this kind of old school Jewish immigrant that it's that character is kind of non-existent anymore because wow. the Jews are not that anymore. Right. So I don't know, I, I, the story sounds pretty. Uh, I don't know if I'm selling it to you, but it yeah, no, I'm I'm know, actually interested. Yeah. 
Is that the context for for Seth Rogen? Sudden, sudden, like you know, he's been getting a lot of press. This outburst Mm -hmm. about you know Jews, yeah, Jews have just been sold Mm -hmm. a a horrifying bill of goods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's what he was talking about. Yeah, I think it's connected to just like film promotion. He said something in an interview, and I think that's what that big. Yeah, uh, just even outside of well, film industry. Well, it's very startling. That just doesn't mm-hmm. get said Mm-mm. in the film industry. Well, in America in general, but especially in the film industry, it's where yeah. kind of reverence for the Israel as a project is, you know, just kind but, of. The, but it sort of sounds kind of almost. It seems in Hollywood. Who knows what is becoming more and more like normal people are turning more where Seth Rogen is especially this generation thinking how much duped they were into like mm-hmm. sent to some kind of camps in Israel never told about Palestine anyway mm-hmm. it just like he was openly saying oh, like, it's like a bunch mm-hmm. of lies yeah. the, way, the way they you know what they tell you as a kind of American Jew right and, uh, you know, there might be some sort of I, I bet he's not alone he doesn't seem, sound or seem like the most some kind of radical avant-garde no, that's for sure <laughs> the last person you expected yeah, in yeah, fact yeah. so I think like, I bet it's around you know no I think there's not... movement but I just didn't Hollywood tends to be quite timid you know people don't want to be the don't don't tend to want to speak out, even in things that are pretty safe, which is one of the frustrations. <laughs> you know, people who have power, they have money, they have all this kind of stuff you think banked that would allow them talk. to be brave, and most of them are never are never brave. Interesting, but then interesting because I, I mean, you you speak from experience, I totally trust you, but my just more like I guess impressionistic, like my impression of, of this place without like real deep experience is that actually on the contrary, like I imagine in Washington or New York circles, that would never happen in a more kind of non-entertainment. But in entertainment, it's almost like people can be potentially, or am I totally getting it wrong? I'm not as surprised because people tend to be a bit more like sort of not practical. They're not as ideologically like bent on this because they don't care about some sort of like uh, DC people policies about Israel or this and that. They're not part of it. They're entertainment. They don't care. Like, I mean, as long as they're not fully controlled. I mean, they care about, like, let's say, pandering to China, which is like a whole different topic, kind of interesting. But outside of that, do they even care about anything? As long as you can make something like successful that a lot of people see, like, what does it matter if it's like your let's say, not particularly friendly towards Israel or... Well, just because it's part of part of the whole package of Hollywood liberalism has a ton of different stances built into it. And one of them is <laughs> this kind of vague reverent. You know, that's why that, that's the big joke about the Academy mm-hmm. Awards always going to a Holocaust film. Oh, yeah. That's, <laughs> well, actually, it was yeah. really well done by Ricky, well, like, well, laughed at. Yeah, uh, by it's, Ray, it's, it's the, a longstanding gag. Yeah, that, that they're, they're yeah. these ideas, you know, uh, built in that there's it's that Hollywood liberalism encompasses all of these different stances that that you question at your peril or that you challenge at your peril. Um, and that, you know, my point would just be like, especially those who are rich, famous and highly mm-hmm. established, it seems like what you say should be true. That, that you know, mm-hmm. you're not you're not politicos. You don't have to get reelected or something. No. You could say what you want. So I, I guess what I'm saying is, is it's amazing how infrequently anyone of any different political persuasion says anything. And maybe maybe they actually know better. Maybe there's like actually there are repercussions if you do. Who if knows? You, yeah. But mostly mostly they don't test the water. So I think that just the blow up over over Seth Rogan saying 
it's not even that extreme a thing to say. No, no. Um, the blow up sort of goes, gives an indication of like how, yeah, this is why nobody says anything. Yeah, interesting. Well, but I kind of definitely gained in respect for him, which is whatever he's like, who knows how <laughs> it sort of connects to the Jewish movie he made extremely mm-hmm. Jewishly, uh, Jewish themed. But, um, but yeah, I don't know, it might be like sort of who knows about vulgarly handled. I don't know. I don't know what you think about his acting skills, but um, but it's um, yeah, it's a good sign that he, someone starts talking like that. You know? Yeah, yeah. There should be a lot more of it. We'll see. We'll see if it starts breaking down. I mean, at any. I mean, one. You know, we tend to note anytime it does because it seems highly unusual. You know, and the safe playing is built in. Let me just say this: it's built into the whole process of just PR at every level. So people who hated an, an experience of film, hated their co-star, hated, will then turn right around and do PR as if they loved the film, they loved their co-star, they loved everything. <laughs> you can't, you almost can't even get anyone to say anything about, about their worst enemy in Hollywood, simply because, you know, the, 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 the common wisdom is you might have to work for that person. You might need a favor from that person. You know, that person might hire you or ask you to be a co-star. You have to play along. You have to play the game. So I think it's at it's almost at every level that this this that hypocrisy is kind of built into the experience of being successful in Hollywood. That's that's my basic take. Yeah, you're never interested. You never or know. At least like, or at least there's like I would think there are clans too. I mean, it's so like people of your clan, you definitely mm-hmm. don't badmouth. I would imagine, and then well, and you also don't want to get the reputation of someone who might who might go from from a film or a TV project and shoot their mouth off about people. So, you know, it's all supposed to be, you know, we pretend we all love each other kind of thing. And so every time somebody does blow up on a set, you find out about it, like Christopher Bale many years ago, you know, losing it at the cinematographer and cursing and carrying on. And it was this huge scandal. It's because, you know, normally we never know about that stuff. And so it can be hilarious even to work on indie films where you think it wouldn't even matter. And then see people just lie their heads off, lie their heads off uh, when it comes time for interview and Q&A and pretend all this lovey-dovey shit. It's really a shocking thing to watch, actually. Well, it's good for them. They're actors. They can pull it off well. Yeah, that's true. Because you know, it's, <laughs> They're it's actors part, for of a reason. Your, <laughs> part of your toolbox. You're right. sort of right. supposed to be able at least to lie well. Well, right. And there's that terrible reluctance of any, you know, we've been talking about maybe doing a show on has-beens and never were's and the has-been phenomenon is very well known of just people. That's the BoJack Horseman premise of the way people hang around forever, even after their show's canceled or their movie career is basically over and they'll just hang around on the fringes forever trying to get back in. And that's another aspect of like never, never trying never to talk out of turn, shall we say, um, about co-stars, about people you work with, about anything. Making so- anything sound like it was a bad experience is dangerous. It's it's funny. I wonder, is there like a track record, those who don't play by the rules, what happens to them? Oh, oh there's that's another thing is that just historically the repercussions were, were built in and well known. And I can just immediately segue into the case of Olivia de Havilland, which is mm-hmm. kind of going back in Hollywood history. 
died at the age of 104 on July 26th. Um, the longest living, blah, 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 of, the, of Hollywood's golden age. And pretty much all, all anyone's leading with in the headline is she played Melanie in Gone with the Wind. Mm-hmm. That's not really the most interesting thing about Olivia de Havilland. Olivia de Havilland won a landmark case that is named after her. It's still called the de Havilland Law. Um, that sort of broke the back, began the process of breaking studio, the studio power that they had over, over actors, anybody who worked for them. Um, But in particular, actors had to sign these draconian seven year contracts and they, which is already such a long time to be bound to a studio. And you have to, you had to basically, even, even if you were a star, you were agreeing to everything. You had to sign a morals clause. Mm -hmm. You had to, they managed your private life as well as your public life. You had to agree to any project, any film project they gave you, no matter how much you hated it. And if you, in any way, defied them you know said i won't do it they would tack that you would go on suspension they called it and they'd tack whatever amount of time you weren't working onto the end of your contract so a seven-year contract could turn into a 10-year contract if you kept you know refusing films and that kind of thing so it was a real a really bizarre situation where the most pampered seemingly and best paid people in hollywood Mm -hmm for especially 20s, 30s, 40s, had so little power that they were worked, in some cases, to the point of zombification. And so it's almost like glorified indentured serfs. Absolutely. Like glorified, for sure. Yeah, it's very cleverly mocked in, in Hail Caesar, if you ever watched the Coen Brothers movie. Where, I love it, yeah. where, where the George Clooney character who thinks of himself, he's a big pampered star, one of the biggest in Hollywood, and he gets slapped around by the, by the studio enforcer in the end, who says basically, you're, you're just like the guy who collapse the slate you just get out there and do your job and it was very much like that that might seem like a fantasy it wasn't they had no power and, and that's why he was like sorry it just was such a great scene i think uh-huh. that's when he was sort of like convinced by the hollywood marxist oh <laughs> about, yes right he's like they, like they got this thing good. called capital yeah but you know, like, it's like i think it spoke to him because of how absolutely he recognized recognized the situation he was in and that was going to have to be knocked out of immediately right yeah but right. they were so honestly telling this to that studio <laughs> I know <laughs> yeah they got this book called Capital that explains what's happening right here it's a really beautiful like, scene <laughs> But at any rate, so Olivia de Havilland, you know, one of the most important things she does is she, you know, other stars had already tried. James Cagney had had already gone up against the studio several times. Betty Davis, um, I think it was five years before her, the late 30s, 37, I think, took them to court for the same thing, lost her case. Um, and now Olivia de Havilland, these were all Warner Brothers employees, and Warner Brothers was noted for being the most slave driving of any of the studios. People just yeah. were worked off their feet for years, sometimes without vacations for years um they were they were just like literally staggering from job to job um so finally she takes them on and she wins but the repercussion is that for two years she doesn't get another part and you know i haven't been able to find out how she i was surprised it was only two years frankly that she was blacklisted no one would hire her as punishment for having challenged the power of the studios and it's the beginning of the end it's the beginning of of people starting to reject the power of those horrible contracts pretty soon by the a few years after she does this which is in 1940 i wrote it down somewhere 
I think it's 43. I think that's right. Um, yeah, it's 43. A few years after that, you know, actors are all going freelance. They're opening up their own production companies. They're, you know, it's a radically changed landscape in, in only a few years. And that's when she makes her comeback in 45. So that's important, like that she took this huge chance with her own stardom and it took a it took a big hit and she managed to claw her way back. She was considered a fine actor, um, you know, always being nominated for Academy Awards, won two of them. And she was, she was ex- actually excellent. And, you know, it, it would be good to talk about her in terms of some of her strengths. Cause if you only know her from Melanie and gone with the wind, she does a good job with an impossible role. It's, it's the super sweet, super highly moral, super nice woman. Who's the contrast to Scarlett O'Hara. It's kind of a, but also kind of unbelievable and like so, so unattractive. In so character. good, so good that it, you have to struggle to believe, but her, she, she had another strong suit. She played, could play intelligence very, very well. And she played irony very well. So she could play the, a, a kind of level of irony that seemed to belong even when she was a young woman to a much older woman. So there's a, mm-hmm. a good example of an old melodrama called To Each His Own, where she has to play from her from her the age 20s, somewhere in her 20s to her 50s. And she's completely convincing as a woman in her 50s. She just has those kind of deeper tones, the more sardonic quality of having lived that she does really, really well. Um, if you see Strawberry, she could also do drama. She could do adve- action adventure like with Errol Flynn. She did all those swatch buckling films with him um she could do comedy if you ever get a chance to see strawberry blonde she's very very funny and again deeply ironic she's this suffragist you know for votes for women and all this stuff who doesn't fit in and you know how she handles being this kind of odd duck that nobody finds attractive and nobody likes and she's got to go toe-to-toe with james cagney who's like one of the great actors of of that era and she completely holds her own she's funny she's good she's also in her big day Debut film is in *Midsummer Night's Dream*, the the Max Reinhardt adaptation of 1935 that Kenneth Anger claims to be in, though he's probably lying. But it's a legendary production, and she plays Hermia, and she's so good, and she's like 18. She actually can do Shakespeare and Shakespeare comedy, which God knows almost never works. I mean, if you ever watch many Shakespearean, you know, productions, hey, they can be real killers, but she gets all of her laughs. So she was really a very fine actor, but she also was brave. Shakespearean language, like no sweat. Exactly. Right? No sweat. Absolutely all over it. So she becomes a star very quickly based on it. She's also great looking, which always helps, obviously, in Hollywood. And has a long career, and it's interesting. And she winds up getting awards all over. She winds up with the, she lives in Paris from 1952 on. She winds up getting the Legion of Honor. She's got all this huge medals of honor all from various countries. She's a dame of the British Empire. All this other shit. So she's a very prestigious um, actor figure, but that kind of undermines her a bit. She actually was was really, and I can't stress how hard this is. Usually, people can't play intelligence. It's really a problem. <laughs> it's really well, a problem for actors. Right? And that could it. be the most obvious explanation, but, you know, I won't even make that judgment. It's just maybe it's harder to convey that you're thinking. You're a thinking person. That's hard to convey. I don't know. But she was very, very good at it. So that's, that's and from youth, from early youth. So that's always a precious Precious quality to me. So well, that's, she's got that. Does think like she was intelligent, or that's not necessarily? The I case. got the impression she was intelligent and tough and and savvy. Yeah, and she wasn't afraid. That she was just like, all right, screw it. I'm going to go live in Paris, and they'll appreciate me, and I'll start doing selected theater work. And you know, when the Hollywood, co- even the comeback was over, um, you know, she she 
she she didn't seem afraid or daunted. She just go on with other phases of her life, and I think that sort mm-hmm. of ha- helps her legend. She also had a legendary feud with her sister Joan Fontaine. They were both stars. They were both Academy Award winners. Joan Fontaine for things like Rebecca. I think she won for. Oh, that's for, right. Okay, I didn't connect them when she was only nineteen. So you know, obviously a tremendous amount of talent on the family, but they hated each other and could not get along. So it became one of the you know literally scenes at the Academy Awards where one wouldn't shake the other's hands, and you know, whole whole big drama that got played out in public there. So that's always nice. That adds to the juiciness of the general um, but you image. Know, you, you kind of made me um, curious about this whole uh, playing intelligence is, is hard or mm. almost always a failure. Who is like, um, what comes to your mind like when it's like a particularly bad failure because of how oh, hard... Give, I can give you a funny example, though. I, I don't know if we want to trust Steve Martin to be the guy who gets to be judged. But anyway, he says oh. this. Yeah, I know. Exactly. Um, he makes a movie, Roxanne, which actually has a certain amount of charm, which I like. I like um, and he wanted, desperately wanted Sigourney Weaver to play mm-hmm. the, the lead woman role. And Sigourney Weaver, he, and his whole argument was she plays like she's smart, which she does. He was not wrong. Mm-hmm. And instead, the studio insisted on very, very hot at the time, hot in every sense of the word, actor, Daryl Hannah. And they insisted mm-hmm. on it. And he was like, and he said something basically very cruel. And by the way, I, I really like Daryl Hannah. So, yeah. But he said, look, you can't, someone can't play intelligence just by putting a pair of glasses on them, which indeed is what they do. They keep having to wear glasses <laughs> and a couple of seats. <laughs> And she's supposed to literally be playing a rocket scientist. I mean, literally. <laughs> so that was his mean, his mean um, um, remark when he couldn't get the actress he wanted that he felt really conveyed intelligence, which is Sigourney hmm. Weaver. Yeah. Sigourney Weaver does it well. But not what, speaking of the glasses, when you just put on the glasses <laughs> to sort of like pretend to be, I don't know, bookish or intelligent. Mm-hmm. What about like, I don't know, did you, were you bold or not? Like Nicole Kidman was attached to like a long nose. And she played, um, oh God, what's her name? Virginia Woolf. Virginia Woolf. I didn't watch it. I just it was thought. It a horrible uh, film in general. I don't think she was horrible, but the film is like the most sappiest. Yeah. Like, version of just, you can even imagine. I, don't yeah, know, I, I hated the preview for sure. Our, I think it's yeah. called Hours. Hours. Yeah, the Hours. That's right. That's That's right. Yeah, so they in her case they put a they put a, a serious nose on her, and that was supposed to take the place of glasses, I guess. And yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she like still looked beautiful. It was like, whoa, she like has this long nose. But I, <laughs> but I do have to say, I think she's like, I don't know, she's a fine actress. So she is, and in fact, her intelligence comes across in play in To Die For the best because she yeah. so gets it. She gets how to play that I know. perfectly. I think she was yeah. fighting for that role. I was just recently reading. Speak, actually, a good segue because Buck Henry died. Yes, that sort of stra- that's right. Sort of and he, he's one of the writers, or he is the writer. No, he is the sole he writer. He's, he's the, the sole writer. writer of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he, I mean, I didn't know much about him because he's just a screenwriter. What do people know about screenwriters? <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, and there was just recently like a pretty interesting article because it's been, what, 25 or more years of mm-hmm. um, the, to die for. And, you know, it was such a iconic movie, but no one, I think, knew that it's going to be that way. And uh, yeah, and Nicole Kidman, it said, was like fighting for the role because mm-hmm. she knew she could do it. And it wasn't obvious, I think, to Gus Van Sant. Yeah, but Buck Henry wrote such a fine screenplay. I read mm-hmm. like, the screenplay separately. So I don't know. I guess he's, uh, I don't know, he's one of those. You should know more about it because like The Graduate, I'm not necessarily a big fan of, even though mm-hmm. he wrote it in such classics. Well, but, you know, there's a mm-hmm. show that I loved when I was a kid called Get mm-hmm. Smart. <laughs> and mm-hmm. Buck Henry co-wrote it with Mel Brooks. And oh, wow. I haven't watched it since, but 
boy, it seemed hilarious at the time. Um, it was a spoof on the, the, the then very popular spy genre. I think it must have been one of his earlier credits, obviously, because that's a long, that's early early sixties, I guess. Um, yeah, it's it's. I, I'm pretty sure if I'm remembering right, it would still be very very funny. So I will just throw that in as I'm I'm fond of him for that. Oh, <laughs> that yeah, yeah. oh yeah, Mel Brooks Buck Henry created. Wow, that seems like uh-huh. a good. Good team up. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, he also, I looked up, you know, he also did what? Catch, he worked on Catch 22, What's Up, Doc? Uh, mm-hmm. Heaven Can Wait, he co directed with Warren Beatty, which is news to me. News to me, too. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, they do give Warren Beatty credit. He's always, he's someone who's always being given credit for being like the smartest man in Hollywood. He does not mm-hmm. come across as smart in film. <laughs> I'm sorry. On the screen, to me, he never does. But at any rate, behind the scenes, he he, he seems to like at least team up with very good talent. He does seem to Definitely. have that ability. Yeah, he has a good sense for things. I don't know. But then when you watch, uh, what is it? Uh, when he plays Reed, <laughs> Which, <rap>. uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not, he doesn't come off as extremely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. he's the he who made that movie happen, right? So right, right, like, absolutely. So you're like again. There's evidence that he's quite smart, but does but to me, I always look and I'm like, no, you're better at playing someone who's actually sort of a dummy, like Clyde Barrow is not a brain trust and he actually is perfect his something about his eyes are kind of light and blank and he's too good looking in a way that looks like he's not a smart guy maybe that's just me and my prejudice i saw him in person at a party and i was like he still doesn't look smart i'm sorry he doesn't look smart but he did pose in a perfect pool of light and he stood there all night he found the most flattering lighting he stood poolside but it was this perfectly lit site and it was like he went there he found it he stood there he'd had a lot of plastic surgery so you know he needs the oh, good was lighting he already pretty old at that point oh yeah, yeah. Already- yeah pretty old yeah yeah and he'd already had a lot of work done but it was just that was very canny like everyone i'm gonna look as good as i can possibly look and he just stood there all night and let people come to him and boy did they boy did they he was definitely the uh, one of the a-listers at that party so he didn't well, have to go seek anyone that? out that was carrie fisher and penny marshall's oh birthday that's party. legendary yeah, party, supposedly. Yeah, yeah. yeah yeah but you know actually you mentioned now that he's had a lot of work done mm-hmm. i think i don't know am i prejudiced with especially for a man i mean not that smart why would you be so vain Oh, to get that much work life. done. Yeah, a lot that, of work done. Mm, he, yeah, he looks freaky. Yeah, he really does. He's, I know. Like Especially to the point life. that people can tell. You know, the really artful work is where you're like, yeah, they look awfully good. They probably did. They almost certainly did, but I can't tell. That's when you admire it. Yeah. Susan Sarandon has often been that. Like, I don't know if she can still keep it going, but for a long time, she had the subtlest work being done in the business. You're just like, I ain't oh, got to admire that. She looks so natural. Yes. Okay, I had no idea. Well, oh, that jaw. That jaw is, is staying aloft, but she never gets it too tight. She never gets it to it. Like, she never is vain enough to get it just pulled tight. So she'll always just leave it loose enough to, to make you go, is that natural? It's, it's like almost, but then it's, she looks so fucking good, you know? But, oh, yeah, yeah. It's, the death becomes her. I guess if you go to those parties and you were close enough, you look like that film is almost too realistic, right? Oh yeah, it's all, I would I would think it, the pressure to, to get it get work done would be almost irresistible, if not just irresistible for most people. I don't know how. When Dolly Parton started getting massive amount of work done, I thought, and she's the healthiest minded person who ever went to Hollywood, but then pretty soon even she was getting cut up. I'm like, well, you know, I think it gets to everybody. Mm-hmm. 
but yeah <laughs> but did you like that did, did you like um do i say it right because in english i think i initially watched it in russian death becomes i've still never seen it i've only seen bits oh. of it Watch oh, the whole thing. because I like I quoted because I thought, whoa, that's like so close to that, but treated. But I know about it. it. I know about it. It's a plastic. Oh, Bruce Willis watch. is a plastic surgeon, and blah blah blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you, wait, you gotta. What you have to watch. Actually, it, someone literally just recommended that to me at breakfast today. That all right? I've got to watch it. I guess. No, it's really <laughs> funny. I mean, I. I think I, I loved it mostly as a kid, but then I rewatched it. It's still, you know, it holds pretty strong. I and mean, mm-hmm. even now it just seems a bit more, it's actually darker. I thought mm-hmm. it's like, just because of the, <laughs> the aging is more real and the body decay and all that. And then mm-hmm. it's like, it doesn't, you know, treats it so imaginable. Anyway, I don't mm-hmm. want to like spoil it, do any spoilers for you. Yeah, no, I and, need uh, to. And the Rossellini is in it, this kind of like, basically some weird immortal witch. Oh, I like her. <laughs> oh, I'll watch it. I'll watch it. Yeah, I think I avoided it because I don't really like Meryl Streep and I don't really like Goldie Hawn and I don't really like Bruce Willis. So I was just like. Yeah, but that's like, sort of me. like. Yeah, but they do it. I don't know. They pull it off. It's not your typical. Right. It sounds like it is. Yeah, yeah. Bruce Willis in the most untypical sort of like un- sort of meek, uh, I don't know, pussy whipped, kind of like mm. not hot sort of like he has like the weirdest, weirdest casting. I think it was great, but like it's not typical for him to play that role. Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. I didn't even know, I think for a long time, because I watched as a kid that that connects to, you know, mm-hmm. Die Hard because it just doesn't come together how that guy can fl- can be in die hard right <laughs> right all right that's so right. You gotta, you gotta watch it I'll watch it. uh Anyway, oh, okay, all of them still alive. I'm looking at myself. Uh, oh. You know what? We, we keep mentioning Fred Willard and we never say anything about him. It's like the third time. Say, we keep so blowing by. Is. And we both love yeah. him. It's so weird. We should say something. I we mean, need to say in, something. Yeah, I mean, I have, because I my knowledge is, <laughs> is very uh, shallow, but I, I do, like, I mean, I do love him at Christopher Guest movies because, and he clearly is a genius of improvisation. Mm-hmm. Great. He's like amazing, best in show. It's actually part of. Like part of the movie when he sort of co- a commentator of the the dog show. Yeah, the he's the dog show, show commentator. <laughs> yeah, he make, yeah, but he makes it like that's what make it work because oh, it's transcendent. It's, it's really transcendent because <laughs> how would you put it off? It's like you need to do the right tone. It's almost too realistic. There's a real dog show. Well, and, and it's uh, so brilliant that 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 wonderful ability of certain comedians to latch onto something that you. In, until they do it, you don't know you know. But like, if you've ever watched dog shows, the commentary is off the wall half the time. But he oh, he yeah. zeroed right in on it and then blew it up so huge that it was just like it really was a work of art. Wow, yeah. Because now every time every time I go back to watch a, a piece of a dog part of a dog show and they run all the time, I, I, I'm like, oh my god, they're doing it. They're doing they're doing the Fred Willard bit. You know, not as extreme, but pretty close. I mean, they just babble. They have nothing yeah, to say. They're wacky and they have nothing to say, and they yeah. have to say something all yes. the time because it has to keep talking. Keep going. You think yeah. they'd be so knowledgeable about dogs? You know, and they, that's how they balance it in the in the Christopher movie in Best in Show. The the one guy's knowledgeable and the other and Fred Willard is just off, off the wall. Doesn't know anything. He's like, you know, it's the bloodhound, and he's like, "Well, I'd like to see him dressed like Sherlock Holmes. Wouldn't that be great?" You know, the little pipe and the Sherlock Holmes hat. You're just like, "What are you doing, man?" But that's it, it's like that. It's this weird tap dancing that there's always one of them is doing because he doesn't have anything to say and he has to keep talking about a million breeds of dogs. So that was really inspired. Supposedly, he's su- he was such a genius that even other genius comics 
would flock onto the set when he did his scenes because he was almost surely going to go off onto some tangent that amazed them all. So, you know, Catherine O'Hara and people like that are going to have to go watch Fred Willard perform. <laughs> so that is a tribute. Man. That is fabulous. Because she's a genius, too. Okay, so yes. she's... But they all go like, flock over and say, oh, Fred's on. We got to see what he does. Cause just, and you would never know from his background. He comes from such a a square background. He's from Cleveland, Ohio. Mm-hmm. He went to military school. He served in the army. He claims that's how he knew how to play the, the this is spinal tap. Remember he's touring um, the, the, oh, the yeah. band around on the bass. And he's like, well, no, that's how that guy would have acted. He would have wanted to, you know, cause he keeps trying to ingratiate himself with the band and just saying all this stuff that, you know, his lifestyle cannot match up to theirs in any way. But he's like, no, he would try to be like a regular guy who can get a along with them and he'd be making all of these lame jokes and stuff so he got that right out of his own experience so he yeah he had all this kind of regular guy traits that that seems so so at odds with the the kind of wild you know improvisational genius that would come out of him that that, that i just love that quality of his Some his or- touched, right because it seems that way like um, i don't know how to say i i is it uh, i hope it's flattering like he, he's so it's like he it's a gift right so he's yeah. gifted he's almost touched because it's not it doesn't seem i mean i know there's probably some version some craft there but a lot of it seems like kind of off the cuff right mm-hmm. so and that's i mean it's, it's such a special gift i don't know you really don't you can't learn that Right. Yeah, and he really has the wildness in his eyes. His eyes are mesmerizing because mm-hmm. he just—they're they, often kind of stuck open too much, and, and he'll just be staring in this strange way that makes you makes you wonder, like, what is it like to be in his head? <laughs> because you just feel like, you know, the comic ideas must just be relentlessly popping in his brain, or something's going on in his brain. It's like a loose screw, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a bit, there's something a bit off, which and he never has to. Yeah. to get there either his face is often quite still you know yeah. like he's not trying to do funny faces or anything like that he, he no, stays very, very still from like uh what's the the other collaborators like uh eugene levy levy it's like more i don't know he's definitely way more <laughs> off the cuff right like as far as like more more inclined to emote and fulminate and is that what you mean or yeah no Fred Willard seems generally like a bit of, something off about him like there's mm-hmm. something cra- all this crazy comedic right. comedic pieces while right. like Adam and Catherine Hara or Eugene Levy I mean they're great improvisers clearly because they've been doing it together for so long but it's they don't they they somehow come off as more normal uh-huh then yeah they, no i think and i think a screw loose is, is definitely like there's some some wire you know fritzing out in his brain is what he can really convey well <laughs> yeah and it's someone also who can be in their own obsessive groove so that so the guy in um a mighty wind who's always he's always you know thinking he's gonna make a comeback who had the the, the catchphrase what happened? And he can't seem to get that that's not funny. It's never been funny. It's never going to be funny. But he's he's in his own feedback loop. So that, that's another inspired um, um, part there. So he's definitely an honored dad. Oh, my God. Yeah, that was that was that was hard, actually, because, you know, he just seemed like he, he was always so you always looked forward to him so much, even if he only had one or two couple, or a couple of scenes that, you know, him dying was just like, no, no, that was really a hard one. I remember. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, next to him, oh no, no, no. Actually, Fred Willard next to Jerry Steele, and next to Buck Henry, I have the name of Kurt Douglas, which he died really early on in 2020, I think, right. the beginning of the year. And I, I just put him in because it's actually I found it funny. It's my own ignorance and also part mm-hmm. of the I don't know what is it, millennial or, or what, like. I really like how I know of him initially, and for a long time, that's all I knew. Uh, it's from the movie Greedy. Oh my <laughs> you know god, that? I don't even know it. Greedy. You don't know the movie? Well, here it is. Like I have a whole new dimension. It's potentially I haven't rewatched it in years, so I don't know. It might be in bad taste. I don't know. It's mm-hmm. like it's a comedy about a very, a very kind of rich old. Uh, a greedy person mm-hmm. uh, who is played by Kurt Douglas. He's already kind of, it's like mid 90s, I think he's already like a grandpa. Mm-hmm. And uh, all kind of relatives are trying to get to his money because they're waiting for him to die mm-hmm. they want to be in his will and and the only person who i think actually cares about him is like this uh, character played i think yeah My- michael j fox i think mm-hmm. he's like, like a young i don't know what is he it might be even a nephew or mm-hmm. what do you call it um when it's uh, not a nephew but um Grandson or great nephew. Great nephew. Yeah. Anyway, and it all revolves around that. But um, and then eventually Bond, and I think probably the good guy eventually gets the money. And uh, but anyway, but but I found it funny because eventually when I found out who Kirk Douglas really is, like when I grew up, because I watched as a kid, it was kind of big. I don't know. I, I still couldn't couldn't delete that image of just sort <laughs> <laughs> of like grumpy old uh-huh. man. I think mostly in a, <laughs> a lot in the wheelchair. Uh, right. <laughs> home, and I'm like, wait, he was um, like a sex symbol, Spartacus. Mm-hmm. Oh, he was, you know, because he kept talking about how how chiseled he is, yeah. what kind of waist he had, and all that. And it somehow, I wonder if it's a lot of people, unless you're like some crazy cinephile of my generation. That's not like if you come from popular culture, mm-hmm. it's not what you think of Kirk Douglas. Kirk Douglas, <laughs> like an old grandpa, and at best, like the dad of. Um, What's the name? Michael Douglas, which I really don't care about. Right. Well, you know, Andy, and he did stay. I mean, he lived so long that he was an old man for so long. And that's, you know, a super well-groomed, super fit until at least he started having strokes. But then he always he always made public appearances anyway. He clearly clearly worked really hard to speak as well as he could because he was always doing interviews. So people would have sort of known him as, yeah, like this omnipresent old man (laughs) who would show up all the time for a long time, for a couple of generations because he lived to be, I forget how, what was he, 100 or? He was I think old. He, died. he was older than Hunt. Wait, actually, we should, we should kind of a bit more together. Hundred three. Hundred three. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I forgot to write him. That's down. good. Yeah. No, he lived well. So all my life, I mean, I'm thirty. So like, I mean, it's kind mm-hmm. of loud. I mean, I know I should know my film history better, but like, that's how I was introduced to him as an old grandpa. Mm-hmm. So no, like, not too old, but like definitely grandfather figure. And I don't know. I thought it's kind of funny. That's how I connect to him the most. Yeah. And other movies that I, his old movies that I watched much later, mm-hmm. I sort of. I don't know. That wouldn't touch me as much because it's like it was older and yeah. it's more like it's just part of like I don't know film education and history. But the film Greedy, <laughs> <laughs> that's where it's at for me. That's, where it's at. that's so funny. Well, and it's actually kind of it's kind of enviable because then you can, if you want to, unearth all these layers of of his career. I mean. Because he was, you know, the the great looking, you know, you know, Titan of Spartacus and what the Vikings, those two were like the must sees of just like seeing how many, what a magnificent figure he was. He had the most unlikely cartoon like 
physique. He was so broad-shouldered and huge-chested and then had this tiny, tiny waist and hips. He really looked like a cartoon drawing. He was insanely he kind of muscled. Like pie when yes. he's spinach, after yes. spinach. almost insanely, ridiculously <laughs> muscular in that way, in that cartoony way of cartoon masculinity. So that's perfect for that 50s era. But then there's all the great film noir stuff where he's 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 you know his his hilarious and wonderfully scary shark faced you know um, um, villain character gangster character in um, Out of the Past for example he's he's just hilarious and the teeth he makes such great use of these choppers he's got so he bites you know he does all these biting lines that are really really funny and he made it, but it's all menace and he's really great at that and before they knew what to do with him sometimes they'd cast him in these weird roles where he's really this kind of soft guy. <laughs> So there's the strange love of Martha Ivers, and he's this completely henpecked husband of, of Barbara Stanwyck. And you're less like, and you know, you're looking at Kirk Douglas, and he's got little little round glasses on to make him look look a little more pathetic. But even so, it's it's you can tell they were really reaching. Like, what do we do with this guy? So yeah, so so you can go through. You know, he had so many so many angles to his career, so many eras, and then he becomes kind of a serious you know, producer figure. So things like Spartacus and Passive Glory and all that. And he, you know, he takes a lot of credit, always did for helping to break the blacklist. You know, he's the one who, who he claims, insists that Dalton Trumbo finally gets credit, um, gets writing credit. Dalton Trumbo famously had been writing under, you know, doing that beard thing, writing under aliases, having other people submit his stuff, all that. And he insisted he get credit, I guess, for, I guess it was for Spartacus. Mm-hmm. That, that helped break the line. So he was always talking a lot about that. There have been others who have kind of undercut that a little bit and said, well, I don't know. I don't know if he was that much of a hero, but he always took a lot of credit. So he was like a Hollywood liberal, it seems like anyway, in in the better sense, though it's probably not that high a standard. So yeah, he was just like, he's one of those stars that we, you know, who has an epic career that's hard to see how you can even match because he was, <laughs> you know, even Michael Douglas, who, yeah, I never had any use for, but he did say it was just so impossible growing up with essentially Spartacus in your own home. He was just so larger than life, even in regular life, that you were in this huge shadow all the time. And I can imagine that's very true. Yeah. And he actually was a pretty short guy. <laughs> Yeah, but he just projected so big. <laughs> no, no, yeah, well, but it's good for yeah. the movies. Like, yeah, people tend to be shorter; they fit better into the to the screen. <laughs> to the screen. That's, that's that why they're short. I always wondered. <laughs> so, no, that's what that's what it's about. Good like, grief! Back in the day, yeah, no, but he, yeah, he has a very large kind of film presence. Have you ever inter- Have you ever seen him as a grandpa in Hollywood? Since you say he always like would show up. Yeah, there was a film he and the the last one he and. Uh, Burt Lancaster, who had co-starred in a bunch of films, they did. I can't even remember the name of it now. It didn't do very well. It kind of died. But they were both old, old guys by now. But there was this utterly gratuitous scene where they had to. Uh, Burt Lancaster had to meet him at a gym. So, so, mm-hmm. so it was literally clearly so Kirk Douglas could strip off, so you could see he was still just insanely <laughs> muscled out. And he had to have been, I don't know, I forget when it came out. It was probably 80s or 90s, maybe. So, yeah, so he was super old, but he was just ripped. And, yeah, there was no other reason for that scene to be there other than that. So that's really all I remember. It wasn't a very memorable film. But, yeah, I've seen, I've definitely seen his older, some of his older stuff. Not much. No, no, no. I mean, if you met him, like, in, in real life. Oh, no. Sadly, I would have loved to. My God. That would have been fabulous, my gosh. No, no, I didn't. I didn't. 
I didn't meet nearly as many of the old stars as I would have liked to have met. I would have been way more excited about that, probably. <laughs> well, they usually just sit in their like homes around Mahone Drive. That's yes, I think they come out in their houses. <laughs> yeah, because the drive around there is like, what is this place? It's just this like really famous people sitting there. Yeah, all these high walls and gates yeah. and everything, and you're like, oh, they're in there somewhere, I guess. Yeah, exactly. You have to be invited. I think the only way. Yes, <laughs> yes. It's invitation only, anyway. very much so. In fact, I was. You wouldn't have heard of her, but her name was Dorothy. What was her name? Not Dorothy Malone. Dorothy. Dorothy. Shoot, now I'm gonna forget her name. She was a minor star. Dorothy McGuire. And even then, she was she, she she was in a lot of Disney movies. Uh, she had kind of had a she was in Gentleman's Agreement. She started off looking mm-hmm. like they were going to try to make her a star, and she never quite made it. But um, um, but at any rate, even she, you know, she she had someone living in the cottage and behind her house, and he wanted to throw a party, and we all had to be kind of be vetted, even to be there. And then she sat that out there. I forget if she was in a wheelchair, but she was somewhat impaired. And she sat in a kind of, you know, very formal, you know, outfit and just sat still in a chair. And we were all supposed to, like, not approach her. <laughs> she was just kind of placed there. Yeah. We were told. Yeah. yeah. Like, don't just go up to her. Like, if you really want to meet her, I'll have to, you know, the, the person who was living there, would, I will have to conduct you over there. You'll have to. I think I did ask to be introduced and it was just a very quiet, polite hello. But it was so stately. It was so old Hollywood. I couldn't believe it. It was like the whole thing had to be stage managed. So she wouldn't have any rude encounters or anything or something. So I don't bizarre. know. Yeah. So even that was strange. And she was a very minor figure. I was probably the only one there going, oh, Dorothy McGuire. <laughs> Everyone else is like, who? <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, it's an odd place. What if it was just done to protect her own ego from the fact that people actually wouldn't come up to her even if there were no rule? You yeah, know? and you couldn't know. You couldn't know if it, literally it, she'd become, had she become slightly like agoraphobic and slightly scared of people. Did she have health? You know, I, I didn't really get an explanation. It was all very hush hush. No, it's but there's also as... there's something about think about it. If you like say like oh tell everyone no one can come up to me mm. that at least announces you're there yeah but and there's someone who <laughs> and you're like important like people probably will rush to me but the truth of it might be that no one cares about no you no one would have paid any out, attention right they wouldn't, even, they wouldn't try i mean maybe you but <laughs> yeah <laughs> maybe probably just you. me <laughs> there's something like yeah. that yeah yeah well, well you know before yeah. we end we should really talk about ennio morricone Oh, Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That wasn't. Well, uh, okay. I mean, I don't care much about him. I mean, the stuff obviously hits you in the kind of gut level, you know, his music, but um, I don't, I don't know. Intellectually, honestly, I don't like him. Wow. So I can't like, I mean, I understand it's like works emotionally. I mean, it's all I can say. I don't understand, but why intellectually doesn't it work? I can say, because that's not the music I like. I like like someone like, I don't know, Michael Nyman. So wait, um, so you like music on an intellectual basis, not an emotional basis? I don't see. I can't even understand that myself. <laughs> wow, but okay. I have just a general, general, not an aversion, not an aversion, mm. but like I definitely feel in the mo- in the movies, music is frequently very manipulative. It's mm-hmm. not always that way. Sometimes it just adds, or it's like a some kind of symbiotic relationship. Mm-hmm. But frequently, it's like extremely manipulative, and it and it like makes. It, it makes this like the scene because other things fail or whatnot. And he's one of those guys who really were great. I mean, just from my experience watching movies with his score is like really tight, kind of tuning it up. I mean, it's all very kind of, I mean, it's fairly simple. 
and melodramatic stuff, very emotional. And I, as a normal person, obviously it works on me. It's like can touch me, but I do not, I do not like that. I don't like being manipulated like that. I do not appreciate that. And I don't find it like, it's not complete. I don't know. I don't enjoy it, even though it works. So I don't know if it makes sense. It's been my honest okay, opinion. Okay, well, that makes more Yeah, that's no, my I, honest opinion. No, I understand. Okay. So, so that's 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 kind of my kind of peasant opinion, but at least it's, it's how I feel. What, what about you? Well, it's not that, you know, I feel even daunted talking about them. I actually dreaded talking about it because I don't know mm-hmm. enough about music. I have almost zero formal training. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I actually you know, have a very bad ear for music. I can't sing at all. You know, all of these things me sort of seems makes it seem to me disgraceful that I should even be talking about him. We probably should have brought in a guest. But yeah, but. From everything I've experienced of his scores and just from everything I've read about him, he's so daunting a figure. He's almost terrifying. Uh, apparently, there's <laughs> there's no there's no area of music he couldn't he couldn't work in brilliantly. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no instrument he had any <laughs> any hesitation in deploying. There's no style. There's no he he could range everywhere. He was jazz. He worked for a while in opera. He obviously could do pop he could do symphonic mm-hmm. he could he could just range anywhere and he was so inventive that it's still startling even to hear his his most famous you know score you know like the good bad the theme from good the bad and the ugly yeah. which everyone played relentlessly that's probably his most famous um, piece from a movie um and it's got you know of course it's got the the, the all of it the the gunshots the whip cracks the <laughs> all all of that stuff in a way that's just just thrillingly unconventional. He was also a member of something, an Italian um, avant-garde group of composers called The Group. And they were literally doing, you know, avant-garde experimentation in music. And he, I think he could also easily just moved over to applying, like, we're just going to stretch the boundaries of of what you can do. We're going to do a whole oboe-centric score here. We're going to, you know, it's, it's, you wouldn't have thought, he wouldn't have hesitated at more cowbell. You know, you know what? Whatever he seemed to be able to imagine, how to use voices in unprecedented ways as part of compositions. Um, you know, for me, I was first really, really struck. Obviously, you're you're hugely struck by the the especially the Sergio Leone spaghetti westerns that he's most famous for scoring. Though he did tons of other spaghetti westerns and tons of other films in general. Um, for me, it was Battle of Algiers because I didn't realize it was his score when I first mm-hmm. saw it. I just, so I just was like, wow, that is a that score is so unexpected and so incredible that I can't I can't even I can't get over it. And then of course, belatedly, I saw that it, it was him. He does things that are so um, potentially potentially just count you know they they counterpoint in a way that's really fascinating. So there's a terrible montage. It really is an anguish to watch where there's torture going on. You know the Algerians um, are just being rounded up like cattle and and tortured to get them to confess if they're in any way um, um, part of the um, you know the the revolt against French um, occupation. Um, and, but some people are just being pulled off the street, hoping that they'll you know they'll name somebody, anything. And so there's this it's a montage of torture, including waterboarding, hog tying, and then hauling up to the ceiling. Just all these um, hideous painful scenes of agony and he does this very very soft you know counterpoint mournful score that has a great 
great lyricism to it. It's it's hard for me again. I'm, I don't have the vocabulary to explain why it's such a powerful choice and why it's not necessarily the choice that you you, you would you would pick. It seems to go against the rhythm of the montage, um, and it's it seems. It seems so soft. It's got this kind of plaintive horn. It's it's just a it's just a somehow it's a more moving choice than what you think of would be a more obvious choice. And then the probably the most famous sequence is the the scene where there's three Algerian women. They are dyeing their hair and putting on makeup so they can kind of pass for um, um, for women who have kind of gotten themselves westernized, taken on French French adornments because they're trying to get through the, the, the checkpoint to get over onto the, uh, the kind of French set dominated section so they can plant bombs. And there's just this marvelous, like blood pumping percussive score while they're literally putting on lipstick, dyeing their hair. <laughs> so again, the counterpoint quality of, but it makes complete sense because they, this is going into battle. This is, this is a bombing mission, but at the same time, it's women, you know, putting on different clothes, fashionable, you know, for then French, you know, the newest French fashions of the early 60s, that kind of thing. Um, And it just gets your blood just going. And you are, it's, and it's really transgressive in a way, and and often shocked my students because you find yourself very much, you're supposed to clearly, the movie is on the side of the Algerian cause, but you're going to see something shocking. You're going to see bombs planted in places where there are all teenagers dancing or a baby at a little diner, babies, grandparents, and there's, and there are going to be pauses where they look around the room and look at who's going to die in five minutes after they've left, after they planted the bomb. And students were often really shocked at how much they, they would have, you know, tended to take the supposedly moral position of being, of course, against violence, against bombing um, people who aren't active military, perhaps, and clear-cut enemies. Um, but I think it's the music that, do- that does it. it. It so propels you emotionally um, into this this... This, this scene into into what they're doing that you're there whether you want to be or not when when it actually goes down so it's true that there's tremendous emotional power there I think it's more than that though I think he's so such a serious composer that for me the impact is always like it's almost like someone is saying to me life is large <laughs> lives are large you know and it has the opposite effect of so much of our culture which is that everything is petty everything is small. Um, mm-hmm. nothing major is really happening in modern mass culture lives. We've all been reduced to kind of non, you know, dull non-entities. And he puts all the size back in, in a way that doesn't seem kind of fatuous. It makes you actually believe that, that he, it often, for me, the emotional impact is I'll often think of aspects of his scores in aspects of my own life because emotionally it's hard for me anyway, it's always been hard to sort of accept what gets imposed on you by the culture, that your life is small because it's hard to feel it small. It still feels huge when you have to go up against, against yes, fearful, horrifying things. These things still seem large, but everything's telling you it isn't. And then there are those scores that are telling you, no, it is large. And so that I felt very grateful for. Oh, wow. Remember I could reverse because I, I don't remember who said it, but I'm more like clinging to the reverse idea that people frequently think that their life is large, like like some kind of big novel. 
and that's what's coming gonna be many chapters it's gonna be like whatever wild and in actually it's frequently turned out not only it's not a novel it's just like a novella or a short story that's life well yeah i i mean my my dread is that my dread is that 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 my life is nothing it doesn't matter <laughs> and everyone's life is kind of small and nothing and we do nothing with our lives and yeah that's that's the dread but and the I, reverse is that the idea is like if people think too big or like the delusion which is good to live in delusion why not that it's that it's big oh no I, th- I think that i don't know that i think you should think your life is large because it's all you have so it should oh, be yeah. as big as the world for you and that and that to the extent to which you accept what is imposed upon you is the extent mm-hmm. to which you've doomed yourself. In fact, to this self-fulfilling prophecy that your life is nothing. And so that's why I think it needs to be combated. You need to think of your life. Your life mm-hmm. is all you have. So so you better invest in its largeness. So, yeah. I actually disagree that nothing. I would just say rather than it's like, again, rather than it's like war and peace, it's just like a short story by, I don't know, Philip K. Dick. It might be like very insane, but it might be oh, like Oh, okay. Well, but short. I wouldn't think of a, of a short story as being necessarily, you know, that doesn't make it, it nece- I mean, it, that makes it short. <laughs> I don't know that it makes it small in scope or petty in any way, necessarily, though. Well, but it's, yeah, but not as many turns as you would think. <laughs> yeah. Just that, that's the idea. By turns, I mean, again, not in the years, in lived years, but generally. Oh, like, I'm just talking about not not in, like, how much happens to you, like, whether you're mm-hmm. living exactly, whether you're living out war and peace or some, yeah. you know, David Copperfield's library. No, I mean, more like, you know, can you can you accept or believe that there's any significance in your life? I think a no, lot of important. people. I think it's important to believe there is. Or but so many like people are all too ready to be like. It almost brings them too close to maybe religious faith or something that they want to say. Of course, it, it means nothing. That's a very popular stance, it seems to me. Well, it's nihilism. Nihilism yeah. is very widespread. Yeah, which I think is yeah. just yeah. That's a probably just because I can never achieve that ever. I can never think that way. <laughs> but I think it's also a boy. What a stupid way to flush your life. Don't do that. God, don't do that. Yeah. That's too terrible. Yeah, true. It's so anyway. interesting that you brought Maricana into it. Yeah, because his score, it, it actually does not contradict to what I said briefly. Mm-hmm. That it's sort of this kind of larger than life, pretty recognizable emotions. Well, theme. but I don't think, I mean, if you read about him, I mean, maybe, but he's he's the opposite of any kind of simple score <laughs> it's the, the the emphasis is on the on the complexity on the limitless invention uh, on the fearlessness on the mastery of every instrument and every type of music and you know his fellow musicians and composers called him the master maestro mm-hmm. um, i don't know yeah no i i get it i i, I didn't say my opinion is that you know <laughs> that's just one opinion mm-hmm. i don't know Again, I don't know. Is it because I like more atonal stuff? I don't know. Well, but yeah, he does it. If, if you get more into it, he does all these avant-garde scores. They I mean, the ones people know are the Spaghetti Westerns, the bigger, more famous films, mm-hmm. Days of Heaven. He does The Thing. His score for The Thing is still so tense and great. The Thing. Um, oh, interesting. It's him, right? Yeah. yeah he did 1900. He did The Untouchables. He did The Mission. He did Hateful Eight. You know, 
Tarantino really emphasized getting him back for Hateful Eight and Django Unchained. He's worked with so many directors. He's worked with Polanski. He's worked with, you know, you just go down this Hugh Bertolucci, uh, Dario Argento, Warren Beatty multiple times. You know, you go, he, he was hugely sought after. In fact, one of the more interesting things revealed to me by um, Gabriel Uriard, friend of the show he actually said do you know that he was gray list seems like possibly he was gray listed by hollywood at least i'm assuming in the 60s because by the 70s it looks like he was being hired a lot but because of his membership in the italian communist party and he sent Mm -hmm. me an article that was in italian and he had to translate it that was basically indicating that he and leone had been had been members and that this is why he he had been gray listed by Hollywood. I haven't so far I've been hunting around and I haven't found other articles on this, but you know, it can often be hard to track these things down. So I don't know how true that is or how that would be such madness if it were true. But it does seem wow. like by by the seventies he's he's getting hired an awful lot. But of course the blacklist was coming apart by then. So I'm assuming it would have been a kind of sixties phenomenon. Hmm. But I, so far, I haven't, been, I haven't been able to find validation of that anyway. And also didn't really like affect him that much since he became such yeah, I don't, a... Yeah, and I, he didn't care. I mean, he was always Italy-based. He had no interest in coming to Hollywood to live. He never learned English, supposedly. He just didn't, he didn't care. He had, wow, so, he, had his, he had his fingers in so many pies. He was doing so many different kinds of music for so many different kinds of projects. I don't think he really cared like if he came to Hollywood and, and made it yeah. there or something. I don't think it really mattered to him. But wow, uh, that's that's what Hollywood actually respects when, yeah. when someone <laughs> really actually Exactly. Care. Now we really need that guy because he does not give a shit if he's here or not or we worked that's for us or movie. not. It is. So overall, you, you see it as also kind of life-affirming, right? His music is more... For me, for yeah, that he seems to see size and scope and, ser- again, a kind of underlying seriousness of, like, these are large, you know, kind of, well, to match Leone, kind of mythic battles, but that you mm-hmm. feel your your individual actions are mapped larger onto, onto the world or something kind mm-hmm. of cosmically large, which I, I, I've always liked, but, you know... Yeah, we, we really are allergic to that now. That's considered a really retro, I think, and regressive well, idea. Well, it sort of only works with kind of meta-narratives or, and postmodernism rejects that. Yeah. And supposedly we live in, I guess, postmodernity or postmodernity. I lost count, actually, yeah. how many posts yeah, you have too. to attach to the modernity. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, but it feels that it definitely rejects meta-narratives and Marikane was <laughs> kind of pre that. Right. It just. Yeah. And, you know, frankly, if it's post, I don't give a shit. So, <laughs> you know, so I'm with Morricone. I'm back with Morricone. <laughs> I, I don't care. Okay. <laughs> Once I can't have a meta narrative is when I, I'm in trouble. <laughs> That's when I'm in real trouble. Yeah. Well, who knows? It might be a comeback of meta narratives because how, how many fragmented realities can you like sustain? Yeah. Can you sustain? What's the idea? I don't know. Can you even? Is it sustainable? This sort of like take on the post post yeah I don't know anyway I think uh, well we sort of I, talked about the people that matter I think I think know there's so many that died but yes couldn't possibly take them all but yeah I think we've hit our main our main people yeah yeah and luckily actually the ones that mattered I mean they're really I mean I do have to say they live pretty long lives overall it's not like some kind of yeah know, mysterious Yes, a lot of 80s, 90s, and even into the hundreds. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, so uh, I suggest, I mean, we don't have to settle uh-huh. on it. I suggest we 
next time we talk about American pickle. <laughs> that sounds great <laughs> but, to me. But because uh, I'm like invested, I mean, I guess full disclosure, I was like really shocked when I, I saw the trailer for mm-hmm. it because I was like working on a version of that idea independently. Oh, oh of, wow. But, uh, but like not the person from 100 years ago finding themselves, Jewish person 100 years ago finding themselves today, but more of a, actually, I don't know. I, I don't, I, I, what if someone steals my idea? I shouldn't even talk. But anyway, but similar, similar themes in a slightly, slightly different, like reverse order. Right. And more women, women oriented. But yeah, but anyway, so I have a, <laughs> I have kind of personal investment in it. I was surprised that something like that came out. And I don't know how well it plays out. I mean, I haven't watched it. Yeah, but anyway, mm-hmm. okay, so unless we come up with something else. I no, think I think that's a great idea. idea. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, um, I'll talk to you next week. Okay, perfect. Next week. Bye. Bye. There's some kind of natural vibe when I say bye. Like, (laughs) it's hard to find a graceful closing. Somehow not graceful at all. It sort of has. (laughs) Yeah, maybe we should change it up. I just always automatically do it now. (laughs) Like your drill thing, which doesn't come natural. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, it is an awkward. It's awkward. Bye, bye. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, stop this.